The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. Last spring was evangelicals have talked so much about abortion. Let's not talk about it. That was my first thought. And then I thought, now wait, it is a, a, still a huge issue, and all the talk um, reflects the fact that there is something crucially important here. Um, and it also doesn't mean that it's been resolved by any means. Um, and um, when I read this. Um, the chapter on uh, on abortion in the uh, Bauma et al. book, I realized that um, my view uh, was not the only evangelical view. Um, and um, though I read it with great care and was not uh, convinced, I'll just tell you right away, I was not convinced of their point of view, it challenged me to think very deeply about um, some of the issues that are raised in a way that perhaps I haven't, hadn't done as carefully as I'd like to have. So I'd like to uh, go over this chapter and then look at John Frame for a bit, um, which is a view that I'm much more um, sympathetic to. And then um, in the remaining time, I'd like to show you a very interesting interview uh, by Bill Buckley of um, a Harvard law professor who has tried to um, write a book that is meant to reconcile the two sides, pro-life and pro-choice, uh, as far as tactics are concerned, and, and we'll try to discuss that. Um, all right, the Bauma et al. view is based on the following thesis, which um, is um, elaborated in the first couple of paragraphs, and, and the thesis is that there are two extremes or two uh, types of, of opposite views, both of which are rejected for different reasons. And a kind of third way is opted for. Um, the, uh, the third, well, the, the two views, of course, are known as uh, pro-choice, which is meant to indicate that not that you have to have an abortion, but that there are opportunities, there are occasions when the option to abort uh, is legitimate. And the argument on that side is, among other things, based on the fact that uh, human zygotes, um, newly fertilized eggs, and even those which are a little more mature, um, cannot be considered human in the same way as a newborn. Um, and um, they, uh, they send you back to some of their, the ways that, that they represented this view earlier on in the book, um, where they try to distinguish um, between a, um, a human being uh, in a genetic sense and a human being in a as a person or in the moral sense. 
And though they agree that there are, there's every evidence that the uh, newly fertilized egg is, is a human being in the genetic sense, um, that does not make this, this uh, zygote a person uh, in the moral sense. And therefore, um, adding to that the fact that uh, in certain kinds of birth control, and even in the natural cycle, you have some spontaneous abortions anyway, um, then uh, it's, it's permissible to, to, to abort. Um, the other side, which is known as the, the pro-life side, again, meaning to emphasize the fact that you, you have a bias in favor of, of, of the um, procreative process, um, equates the, um, the death of the unborn with the worst holocaust of the 20th century um, and takes the statistics of uh, millions per year uh, of abortions um, to, to mean that, uh, in fact, we are practicing um, the, the, the most widespread kind of, of genocide possible. And then they say, somewhere between these two viewpoints are various middle positions held by those who believe that abortion is a deep moral dilemma um, and who are viewed by the extremes as trying ignominiously to be moderates or murder mandatory uh, motherhood. Um, and um, the, uh, they, this is their view. Um, at the very end of the chapter, they have, uh, when they talk about policy implications on page 232, they say that in summary, their view is the status of the fetus and covenantal ethics implies that people should choose abortions only in certain hard cases. So they're against it, except. They're against it with exceptions. And um, that these same views do not uh, imply murder, with, uh, do not equate murder with abortion. Uh, and uh, they even think that it, there are occasions where they should cooperate with abortions that they don't agree with or wouldn't recommend, circumstances of which do not lead them to recommend it. And um, so that uh, their, their, their view is also um, that there ought to be careful um, limits, including conferring um, with uh, all the experts and so on and the, and the parents. Um, and they say that uh, this um, implies that, a, that personhood should be morally and legally granted to the fetus at the end of the second trimester, a position that seems to us to allow third trimester abortions only when the fetus poses an undeniable and significant threat to a woman's life when it's certain that the fetus is either not a potential person or would have a brief life subjectively indistinguishable from torture. We question the wisdom of an indications policy for abortions during the second semester. That, that's their position. Very conservative, but not um, strictly um, pro-life. Now, my first question to you is, how do we evaluate um, the gradualist position, which is what their view of the fetus is? Uh, the idea is that um, um, the unborn 
um, fertilized ovum, while not a mature moral being, uh, is not uh, without human attributes. It is a, a potential, not merely possible, human being or person. Um, and um, what do we, how do we look at that particular, uh, that particular view? Does it, as far as we can tell, jibe first with scientific fact and second with scriptural um, descriptions, which is what it really should come down to? Do you have an opinion? Okay, that is indeed Frame's argument. You, I mean, you well summarized it. Um, just as uh, to be um, devil's advocate here, um, what uh, is the difference between saying that and saying that abortion equals murder and therefore that the um, ejection of a, uh, a zygote um, because of the IUD or because of the menstrual cycle or uh, a very, very early on uh, kind of abortion is, is the same as, 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 as first-degree homicide, and therefore doing this a lot amounts to genocide. Or is that, is that just simply an implication of Frame's position? See, this is how Bauma argues. I just, want to, I just want us to think this through. Is it... Does, are, do we um, agree with the, the logic... Uh, of calling that mass murder when um, you know we know that millions of um, newly fertilized eggs are are relegated to that to that status. Okay, my question is: Do we have to do we have to say that if we believe that the beginning of life or the beginning of personhood is? Um, you know, the first day of conception. Um, do we have to say that, therefore, it's murder to, 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 you know, to have anything less than, than um, success in bringing the, the child to birth, uh, unless we can, we can, you know, we couldn't prevent it? All right, let me push one step further. Is it appropriate, then, to have a funeral for a, uh, an aborted fetus or an aborted... Zygote. Yeah, uh, you know that's a it's a it's a question. It's a tricky question because uh, what what I'm doing is trying to make the pro-life position uh, think hard about some of the implications of 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 its uh, of its logic. And I I personally have a deep reservations about the idea of considering the fertilized zygote. To have so much of the status of a, of a human being that you accord that uh, zygote the not only the same rights but the same um, social uh, interactions that you do to uh, to, to a full-blown or born human being, um, such as naming him or her, naming uh, or uh, you know recognizing certain traits, you know now. Um, I just have deep reservations about that. However, I don't agree with Bauma's logic, which is to say that you have this gradual potential 
human being getting more and more human all the time. I, I, I agree with you that you're either, and it, with frame, you're either human or you're not. So, so what do you do? And um, my, my sense is that you, you have to have some kind of category, and I'm not really sure what it is, but you need to have some category that makes this developing human being at once fully human and yet not with the same status as a, a newborn. Um, I think that the Bible um, does give special significance to breathing as a sign of uh, life. Um, I realize that um, biologically you're dealing with a technicality because the unborn uh, receives ox oxygen through the umbilical cord and, and not through the lungs, but it's the same process. But there's something, I think, very important about the uh, action of, of beginning uh, to breathe as meaning um, the reception of the breath of life and of independence in some sort of way. Um, now, we know that a, a newborn baby is not independent in any absolute sense. They can't survive more, more than, you know, a few days without people taking care of it. But um, there is a kind of, uh, what would be the word, uh, semi-autonomy involved with beginning to breathe and beginning to, to see, um, beginning to, uh, to hear uh, from sound waves and so forth in, uh, in, in the air and, and, you know, uh, things that I think gives a certain status to the newborn that just simply isn't true of the unborn. So I'm arguing that somehow we should be able to have it both ways, and I, I don't really know how, to, how this works out uh, in, in very great detail. I think we need to say with John Frame that this creature, because of A, the silence of Scripture, and B, the inference legitimately drawn from Scripture should be considered human. This is not some potential human, um, half-human. I don't know what a half-human is. I don't think that you know makes us. It's no such thing. Um, the, I, I have trouble with the uh, the gradualist position of um, of Bauma. Um, um, they uh, they have this this idea that. Um, you can you can have a, a human being that is genetically human but not yet morally human. I, I don't know what that means. I honestly don't. Um, but at the same time, have a difference between stages within the womb and especially, but with the baby already born. I think we've got to we've got to have something there. And and I think it, while it's totally appropriate to have a funeral for a newborn baby, because we recognize that breathing and seeing and um, crying and, and so forth uh, are symbolic of something new and different that hadn't happened before and that, that that's a big step. Um, it would not be appropriate to just go around having funerals for fetuses and, and zygotes and, 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 you know, little, you know, things that are, are almost invisible. And uh, I, I, that's, that's where I'm struggling to try, so, so by implication or by inference, this makes me pro-life in a lot of practical ways, uh, policy ways. I'm very pro-life. Um, and 
because of this view, I don't see how you can start making exceptions for things other than, and we'll get into this in a minute, the possible exception of, of danger to the life of the mother. Um, I, I know it sounds insensitive when somebody says, well, are you willing to make an, you're, you're not going to make any exception even for a, a, a baby who's relegated to a life of torture. Uh, to me, that's like determining several categories of human beings and deciding which ones have the right to live and which ones don't. I mean, that's, to me, that's, that's pretty, uh, pretty blatant. Uh, even though we feel awful for, for a, um, an impaired child, we feel awful for the parents, um, does God authorize us to kill um, a baby just because it's going to have a hard life. That, now, that doesn't mean we need to do everything possible to save the baby either. That We've talked about that distinction in this course a lot. The intent to kill is very different from uh, the, the intent uh, to treat one aspect of a problem that may involve consequences in, in, in other areas, uh, uh, very, very drastic consequences. But, um, I, uh, I think my position is no different from pro-life in, in much of its, uh, of its outworkings. I don't see making, you know, big exceptions um, because it's going to be expensive or because uh, you might have a handicapped child or because you're a rape victim. I mean, I, I know as a man that must be, uh, that must sound very arrogant um, because uh, I, I won't ever be a rape victim, you know, so I won't have the compassion that I need, uh, I'll, some, someone might say. Um, and I can't imagine anything more uh, difficult. Uh, well, I can imagine something, I mean, you know, if I had to imagine something, I could think of something more difficult, but it, it, it is very, very hard to be a rape victim and plus carry this child. It, it must be just awful. But I still don't see how that gives anyone the right to terminate the life of this unborn uh, creature, this human being, um, since um, to say that gives us the right to terminate all kinds of human beings, which you know uh, we we would determine uh, make life too difficult for the mother, and, and I don't think you can do that. But at the same time, my position is not quite the same as pro-life in saying that conception gives you fully uh, independent born kind of characteristics of, that are, you know that a, that a child who, who, who's a day old has in 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 the in the womb um, I don't think scripture just does that with with the unborn um, and and therefore I don't think that abortion is this is always the same thing as first degree murder. Uh, it might be closer to manslaughter. It might be, you know, gross, gross negligence. And there, there are passages in Scripture which um, uh, John Frame used the, the, the famous one in Exodus uh, about that that show that mistreating. Um, a, a pregnant woman to the point where she has a miscarriage is a very serious matter. Uh, but is it serious because the unborn 
has the same status as a newborn. I, I, I think that's probably not the way the scripture looks at it. I think it's serious because there are uh, weaker um, people in society who therefore need more protection, the pregnant woman the, or the, the, unbo- the, 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 um, the unborn. There are uh, strangers in society, aliens. Uh, there are poor people. There are widows and fatherless. And there are people who are, because of their fragility, um, in need of special protection. And, uh, and I think the pregnant woman falls very much into that category. So that the consequence of, uh, of pushing towards a mis- miscarriage through violence is very, very grave. Um, and that's why that verse uh, does that. Um, but um, it's not quite the same thing as, as, as tackling the issue of abortion, which the scripture doesn't directly do. And John Frame points that out. Um, all right, anybody want to say anything? I'm talking too much. Yes. See, the, the unborn um, at almost every stage has something that you could say is so close to the newborn that, it, that the discontinuity, the burden of proof is on those who would want to show discontinuity rather than continuity. And I agree with that. I mean, you have within uh, weeks a uh, parasympathetic nervous system um, a heart, uh, some of the vital organs that begin to develop. Um, you have, um, you know, the beginnings of um, what we might later on call emotions. I mean, you, it, it's all there. Even in um, the first split of the cell, you've got the full um, genetic material to inform the entire human being. So if you're talking about qualitative difference, between that and a thing or an animal or a cell or whatever, you've got it right there. Um, and that, I think that, that is uh, persuasive against the pro-choice position, which basically says this is a subhuman, therefore it's an appendix of the woman, and she can do what she wants. Now, not all pro-choice people are quite that callous, but many, uh, m- much of the pro-choice position depends on this idea that because this is not a human being, here's, here are our options. Now, I, I think that's completely dismantled by this. My only, uh, my reservation with the pro-life is that I think it doesn't take seriously enough the significant step that is taken at the birth process. That, that's my reservation about them. And I think they, they tend to argue as if that didn't exist. I think that's not right. Um, and uh, I mean, if you feel comfortable having a funeral for a miscarriage, that's fine. Many people do. They even give names to the baby. So, but in fact, this is this is a um, uh, this is not a, a position that you find either in the Bible or in civil law or in ancient societies and so on. The, the law uh, protects uh, people who are um, you know uh, who are who are born, but it, it doesn't go do a lot with with um, people who are are unborn and I think one of the reasons is that, that the law tends to recognize birth as being a significant moment of, uh, of definition so I mean I I suppose my position is open to being uh, misunderstood as as uh, as closer to, to pro-choice as than it sounds and in my conscience, it isn't. It has nothing to do with pro-choice. I, I, I you know, I hate the, that stuff. I think it's, 
I think it's um, it's naive biologically. It is um, it's callous um, about about human life and about victims and and so on. And uh, though I can't quite equate it with the Holocaust and so on the way some people do, I think any society which engages in that amount of um, deliberate termination of, uh, of unborn uh, human life um, is a very, very sick, uh, very, very um, deranged society. Um, and, um, you know, even, even John Frame, who is very conservative in ethics, doesn't find the Bible making discourse on the, on the moment of conception, but he says everything else in Scripture leads you to in, assume that you've got to protect this uh, unborn uh, human and, uh, and, to, and to treat it that way. Uh, and um, so that's where, that's, that's where I come down. I, I simply have not quite gone over to, to see... I, I'm trying to establish that, that despite all the continuity, there is some discontinuity, and I, I want my ethics to, to reflect that. Um, let's um, spend a minute on the uh, this parable of the Good Samaritan, which, where they they did a lot of um, uh, of analogy making here and so on. Um, what is the uh, purpose of using the uh, parable of the Good Samaritan by those who do, and what is uh, what is Bauma and all et al's um, um, Response to it. What, first of all, what's the what's the issue? Right, the fetus is a vulnerable stranger, therefore analogous to to the uh, the victim of the thieves. Um, the overall issue, of course, is uh, the possible conflict of interest, um, which the parable, of course, has. You you've got a priest who's on his way to do something. You have a lawyer who's on his way to do something, and 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 this thing comes up, and it's it's a conflict. Uh, you've got to choose. Am I going to stop? and put off what I'm doing and take care of this, or am I going to go on because that's, uh, that's the decision I've made. Now, um, what, um, what do, who believes that the p parable is a perfect analogy to uh, the question of abortion? Right. And that's exactly right. And what was... What's the interesting twist on the story that uh, you have to put in order to get um, to get that interpretation? Not twist on the story, but what's the um, what's the often unnoticed uh, dimension to the story that they point out in order to, to bring you know to to bring that out? Or let me let me just ask it directly. When, when the parable says, "Who is my neighbor?" Uh, or who is the who is the, the the good neighbor? What's the answer to that question? See, what would you think? Remember, remember how this the story is set up. Remember how Jesus um, is is dealing with a a problem that's come up. All right, what the, what is that problem, and how um, would you expect the parable is going to answer that problem? You all remember the Bible story. Why did it come up? <laughs> this is, some people say this is the most often told parable. It, it, 
it's one of the top five anyway. <laughs> okay, exactly. Now, what's the surprising twist in the parable? Because when, when he asks the question at the end, uh, he, he asks who, who was the good neighbor and who was the good neighbor? The Samaritan. Not the victim, not the poor fellow. I mean, he wasn't a neighbor, he was a victim. Um, see, the, the person who had asked Jesus wanted to know what kinds of people do I have to go help? And, 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 he, and his question is, who is my neighbor? Is it, you know, a victim of robbery or is it a, a sick person or is it, a, you know, an oppressor? Who, who is my neighbor? And uh, the, the, uh, the intention is, if you could only figure out a category of people that I needed to help, then I could have a category that I didn't need to help, and I'd know exactly where I, stand, where I stood. And we do that all the time, you know. We figure, um, uh, I need to help the person next door, but the person two houses down, well, that's too far away, and God doesn't expect me to save everybody. So, so Jesus puts an interesting twist on it. He answers the question in terms of not the victim, uh, he picks a victim, everybody realizes somebody in need, but he picks, he, the, the, the neighbor is um, the person who does something, and he, of course, chooses a Samaritan because they were the hated um, people in, in that society. They lived on the border, they'd had a, a history which um, was very problematic in relation to Israel and had a different theology and so on, and they, it was like um, the, the Arabs in France, the blacks in America, the Turks in Germany, I mean, this was that class of people. And, um, and so that, he picks that person as opposed to the scribe, the priest, who is supposed to be perfect in the law, as the example of the good neighbor. Um, and so uh, your neighbor is someone who does the right thing. Uh, the good neighbor of the law is someone who does the right thing to someone else, not somebody who has carefully evaluated what the status of that, of that victim is. And um, now, the pro-choice, the radical pro-choice people would say, um, as you pointed out, well, um, there's no specific condemnation of the Levite. They were just making a, a hard choice, and you can't save every victim, so you've got to leave some. Okay. And Bama, I think, correctly says, but that's not the point of the parable. The point is that the attitude to cultivate is that of the Samaritan, who seeks opportunities for compassion and who recognizes uh, strangers and people needing help and victims wherever they are. And so they, they come to the conclusion that, you know, uh, you can't use this uh, parable to justify abortion. You can only, you, if you have to use it at all, you use it to justify sensitivity to people who are victims. And, and uh, if there's anyone who is helpless, if, as, as it were, it's the unborn, um, and the good neighbor is the person who recognizes that helplessness. I mean, they, they, um, they really try to go overboard to, sit, to be conservative about this issue, though, as we saw at the beginning, they, they don't agree with the, uh, the pro-life people. Okay, does that make sense, that use of that parable? Um, let's talk now about uh, the, another subject that they brought up, which is responsibility and sexuality. Um, what is the issue here? What's the issue um, in terms of the relation of, of sexual life to, um, to the abortion question? 
And where does Bauma et al. come out? It's uh, actually it's pretty obvious. I mean, this isn't anything, any deep dark thing. Well, I mean, the, obviously one of the questions is that it, what is the purpose of sex? Um, and of the of the various uh, kinds of dimensions uh, of sexual relations, uh, depending on what your emphasis is, you will have a different ethical position about abortions. Many, many people who correctly see that part of sexual relations is for pleasure incorrectly draw the conclusion that therefore the consequences are a minor issue, you know, and um, that's, in fact, when you look at the, the uh, statistics across the board, uh, in America, at any rate, a great number of the abortions that are performed, not all by any means, but a great number uh, are performed on um, um, teenagers or, or people in their young 20s who, for all we can tell, would have been able to obtain birth control means, would have even been informed about it, but just didn't do it. And um, not the person who is economically deprived and so forth. Now, there are some of those, and in the inner cities you do find uh, abortions that are uh, for economically deprived and, and, and people who are um, uh, victims and so on. Um, the, the stats on, on rape victims are very, very low, but it does happen. Um, and the stats on people who abort because of, of a potential handicap, uh, again, are quite low, but it does happen. So it's not as if you leave that out, but a lot of abortions are um, people who are middle class, who've been promiscuous, who've had an adventure or, you know, whatever, and uh, woke up to see this, this the terrible consequence. And um, they, uh, Bauma points out that abortion on demand is a way of ensuring that women are not forced to accept the highly sacrificial, uniquely feminine dimensions of sexuality whenever they experience the dimension of it that men do. But it's also a way of ensuring that men and the rest of society are not forced to share the sacrifices. So they're, they're very negative on abortion on demand because, among other things, it makes you irresponsible in your use of, of sex. Uh, both the men and the women. And uh, they point out something that I think we all, we, we've all learned in recent years. There are sometimes curious alliances. Uh, Francis Schaeffer calls this co-belligerence. Um, who would have expected that uh, pro-life people would have had one thing in common with radical feminists? Well, there is a school of, a considerable school of radical feminism which is against abortion uh, for reasons that are very different from the pro-life reasons, but because it, um, it is a, a way to, um, to treat the woman as a, as a victim and as a, to manipulate the woman, to dominate the woman and treat her as a machine, as an object. Um, and um, it renders her less than fulfilled um, by um, removing from her not only the possibility of motherhood, but um, the possibility that sexuality involves commitment to a person and, and, and a whole life of, of family and so forth and so on. So 
interesting alliance there. Um, uh, in fact, there are there have been um, joint statements made uh, in some reviews by by uh, radical feminists and pro-choice uh, pro-life people um, uh, who um, who attack pornography uh, for the same reasons, um, but uh, for, from different frameworks. The, uh, the pro-life people do it from an extremely strong Christian position that, you know, adultery is wrong, and therefore anything that um, treats a woman uh, in an adulterous fashion, whether it be through the imagination or through reading or through pictures or, th or the real thing, um, is, is guilty of breaching the Seventh Commandment, and therefore pornography should be outlawed. The radical feminists agree to the extent that they say it is, uh, it's an abuse of a woman uh, who should never be made into an object. Um, and uh, Bauma and, and, and company uh, attack the, um, the Playboy philosophy for that reason. Um, I'll never forget a fascinating article I read on uh, the Playboy philosophy by, of all people, Harvey Cox. Um, I can't remember, but my sense is that it's in his famous book, The Secular City. But in one of his writings, he has a chapter on the uh, Playboy philosophy. And uh, he makes the interesting point that um, the problem with Playboy magazine is not just the nudes, but it's the, uh, the ads for clothes and hi-fi equipment and... Um, whatever else is in the magazine. And he points out that um, these are just as hedonistic and irresponsible and status-giving um, and uh, macho-making as, as, you know, abusing a woman by uncovering her to the eyes of, 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 of the public. And I think that's a good point. The, the, pro the, the Playboy philosophy is because I have the technical means to do it, it is therefore good, and I should do it. Um, and um, that, and Bauma points out that, you know, um, we do have the technical means to abort, and we have the technical means to um, just squelch the uh, consequences of, of, uh, of a, a sexual error. But that doesn't mean it's right. And uh, so they, they attack the Playboy philosophy on those grounds. All right, um, anything else about the Bauma uh, view? Um, we have about five minutes. Um, I'd like to just review what, uh, what Frame does. I, I know you all are familiar with this material, and it's pretty, um, it's pretty dense exegetical material just, uh, here, but um, I, I'd just like someone to outline for me the, um, the logic that he uses. It's, it's perhaps surprising uh, logic. Uh, you, you might have expected that he simply say, the Bible equates conception with the beginnings of human life, therefore. But he doesn't do that. What does he do instead? What are the steps he takes? Well, what are some of the affirmations that Scripture compels us to make about the unborn child? Um, before you even get to the point of whether it's human or not. What are, what are, um, 
How, how does he go about his argument? I, I think that's what he's doing. I, I guess he would probably be uncomfortable with the word probability, but in, in a sense, uh, that, that's what he's doing. He says there's no verse that says, thou shalt not abort, otherwise it would have solved the issue for all the Christians. Nor is there a verse that says, um, the moment of consec conception equals moral, um, morally defined personhood. You know, that also would have settled it. Um, so he says, we have, to, we have to back up, and we have to look at um, what Scripture uh, does say, and then what we need to infer. Um, uh, and he, as you point out, he says, uh, well, that you've got to think, first of all, of um, the act of love, second of all, um, the, the fact that the, it's a creature of God, then, then you have a living creature, then you have um, a, a creature that's capable of reproduction, uh, then you have um, this, all this stuff on the seed, on, um, on the mystery and wonder of development between conception and birth. Uh, some people would add the f problem of consciousness, though David says um, that I was wonderfully formed in the womb. There's, there you are, he has an identification. It's not necessarily personal consciousness, but it's an identification of himself, his ego, with that creature um, unformed uh, in the womb and so forth. Um, and then um, you have other considerations about prenatal death, uh, so that um, you get the full range of considerations that line up uh, for frame to, to speak with uh, tremendous force on the presumption of, um, of humanity for um, the, uh, the unborn. And I, you know, I think that's a very, uh, a very good, a very solid line of, of argument. Um, uh, I'd just like to draw your attention before our break uh, to page 99 um, here where he, he says something I think quite, uh, quite interesting uh, under K. Uh, the verb yatsa, and uh, we're talking about Exodus 21, that's the famous passage that so many people use. In verse 22, go out, translated depart in the King James, does not in itself suggest the death of a child in question, and it is ordinarily used to describe normal births. With the possible exception of Numbers 12, which almost certainly refers to a stillbirth, it never refers to a miscarriage. The Old Testament term normally used for miscarriage and spontaneous abortion, both in humans and animals, is not yatsa, but shakol, and he gives some references. The most natural interpretation of the phrase, and then he gives the Hebrew, therefore, will find in it not an induced miscarriage, not the death of an unborn child, but an induced premature birth, wherein the child is born alive, but ahead of anticipated time. Okay, so it's a, in, in his view, this passage involves premature birth, uh, not a miscarriage. Now, it's, a, it's up for grabs in a way what you want to call it, since the circumstances that led to it were, were violent. Um, but on page 110, uh, 101, under N, he says to summarize the proper interpretation of this passage, we regard the following as an adequate paraphrase. 
And if men fight together and hurt a pregnant woman so that her child is born prematurely, yet neither mother nor child is harmed, he shall surely be fined according as the woman's husband shall lay upon him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if either mother or child is harmed, then thou shalt give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burning for burning, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. And, uh, and therefore you have here um, not strictly a passage that applies to abortion. You have one that shows um, that when a child is born untimely, it is nevertheless born and needs to be accorded the full rights and status and so forth. Um, and um, that is another step in the argument. It's another stone in the edifice, but it's not uh, as if you'd found a, a verse on, on, on conception that gives you the key to abortion. Yeah, he, it's very interesting how he uh, tries to show that the I, the ego of, of the passages which talk about um, calling uh, before the birth and, and, and before conception and so forth, do have some um, strong um, uh, implications uh, for the humanity of the fetus. Um, and the fact that the baby leapt for joy in the, in the womb uh, when he saw Jesus uh, and so on. Um, it, um, it, simply, it simply mounts up uh, to show that any of the alleged reasons for abortion cannot stand up, with the possible exception of the um, harm or, or, or uh, life-threatening um, harm to the to the mother. And uh, quickly, and then we'll, we will have our break. What is the essence of his argument that would allow that kind of an abortion? An abortion when it is threatened to the life of the mother. How do you, because biblically, if if it if you've got to infer that it's a human being, then then how could you you know how could you choose? What's his argument? It's a very intriguing argument. I don't know whether you'll go along with it or not, but it's an intriguing argument. What's the baby doing to the mother? In a sense, when you get, you know the. A possibly justified abortion here. Well, I'll t I'll tell you because it, it you may have lost it in the in the forest here. Yeah. Yeah. Right, and therefore, um, it's a legitimate move of self-defense uh, to protect that life um, from the, uh, the life of the child. Um, of course, the Roman Catholic argument to the contrary is that, yeah, but doesn't the child have the same right to protection, and therefore wouldn't self-defense uh, dictate protecting that child and letting the mother go? But um, it's not quite the same because you're not in a position to do that. Um, it may, you may do it in an unintended way, but you're, you're, not, you're not doing it directly. Um, right. Intent becomes a very important 
clue. I mean, it's not the only thing, because your actions are important, but your intent is a, a very important thing in, in legislation. I mean, it always has been. Think of the uh, difference between murder and manslaughter. Manslaughter is, um, is killing someone, and maybe uh, through negligence or whatever, but you didn't mean to. You didn't intend to. Um, and, uh, you know, that's a, that's a possible justification for abortion. And the, Okay, let's have a break, and then um, we'll look at some a very, I think you'll find a very interesting uh, uh, tape.